begin by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians seven, I will read verses one through nine. There God's word says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a woman not to have sexual relations good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. O Lord, as we look at your word, would you guide us and direct us? Lord, you know what each person needs to hear this morning, where they need to be helped or exhorted or encouraged or instructed. And by your spirit, would you do all those things through these feeble words? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, in 1837, Hans Christian Andersen wrote The Emperor's New Clothes, in which two swindlers arrived into the capital of an emperor who loved clothes more than caring for his kingdom. These men posed as weavers who could make the most extravagant cloth, but along with its exquisite beauty, it had a magical nature about it. Only people who were competent and wise could see it. The stupid and the incompetent would see nothing. Well, the swindlers required large sums of money to buy the silk thread that would be needed to make this cloth. And they were given the money, and they went and purchased nothing but they pocketed it but they brought out their looms and they worked vigorously day in and day out on nothing and yet the king would send his court ambassadors to go and check and see how it was going but knowing that only the stupid and incompetent could not see the cloth they would not admit that they could see nothing but came back and gave glowing reports of what was being made finally the day arrived when they came to bring the clothes They asked the king to undress, and then they put the clothes on him. And while they did, the attendants and officials declared, How well your majesty's new clothes look! Aren't they becoming this pattern so perfect, those colors so suitable? It's a magnificent outfit. He then went out on an official procession before the whole city. Now no one in the town either wanted to be considered stupid or incompetent. So they all gave admiring compliments until one child belted out he hasn't got anything on this morning we're not talking about emperor's clothing and yet sometimes we have to hear from the mouth of babes because 
people want to go along and say that everything's great, and yet it's not. We don't want to be considered repressive, outdated, prudish. And yet, all along, we're being led to believe a lie. We used to sing love and marriage, love and marriage. They go together like a horse and carriage. You can't have one without the other. Love and marriage, love and marriage, it's an institute you can't disparage. Ask the local gentry, and he will tell you it's elementary. And yet the things we consider this morning that should be understandable to the elementary children have to be explained to those with PhDs. All we have to do is use our eyes and ears, and we can see that the so-called liberation that we have been given has created some of the worst bondage and darkness in our world. Rather than giving life and liberty, it's only wrought death and destruction. And yet all along, people were saying, just like they did to the emperor, isn't this great? Isn't this wonderful? This is so grand. Now, before we dive into this topic, we need to quickly say that we should not be embarrassed to talk about this. I heard a Christian pastor once say, sex is the most talked about subject in our culture. It is the least talked about subject in the church and the least understood subject in both. And the Bible takes neither approach. It doesn't only talk about sex, because sex isn't the best thing. God is. But neither does it avoid talking about it, because God gave it to us. It is a good and wonderful gift. Sex is a powerful part of life that God made for good purposes. But due to sin, like with everything, we've distorted it. And we have sometimes appropriate and sometimes inappropriate shame over it. I sent out an email this week, and I will say the same thing now. Parents, please talk to your children at the right age about these matters. They are going to get answers, and if you don't give them to them, their friends or Google will. Young people, I know the angst of hearing a joke and everyone laughing and you going, what does that mean? And then wanting to find out. May I plead with you to ask your parents. I know it will be awkward. They are going to say, what? You don't know what they're going to say, and you already feel awkward. And parents, when they come, don't go, what? Where would you hear that? They'll never come talk to you again. Say, well, let me explain to you. And help them understand. The flip side of this is that we need to remember, while we shouldn't necessarily be embarrassed, we should not devolve into being crude. The prophet Jeremiah, when he is rebuking Israel, one of his main condemnations is that they have forgotten how to blush. They no longer consider anything beyond the pale, any joke, anything. Uh, not, I'm not embarrassed to hear that. And yet the way our culture deals with this, there should be much embarrassment and shame. But what we all need to realize is that God has given us good, clear answers about why he gave us this wonderful gift. And this morning, we're going to see five things about it. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back. First, we're going to see that it is a picture. Then we're going to see the power of it. Then the procreation that comes from it, pleasure, and then protection. But first of all, God gave us sex and marriage as a picture of our relationship with him. I wonder if you've ever considered the fact that the Bible begins with marriage, Genesis 2, 23 through 25, and ends with marriage, Revelation 19.6, when 
Christ is married to his bride, the church. You could say the plot line of the Bible is God's plan to reconcile his bride to himself through Christ. The marriage is a picture that God gives us to show us what he is like, what we are like, what our relationship with him is like. All of this shows us six wonderful truths. First, God is always faithful to his bride. God never cheats. He always keeps his promises. Second, these pictures show us that God's love and forgiveness are so deep that he pursues his bride even when she turns to other lovers. Thus, the prophet Hosea is told to go and marry a prostitute. And then when she flees from him and goes after other lovers, Hosea, as a picture of Christ, goes and pursues her and brings her back. It's a picture of Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God's love is not just warm, fuzzy feelings, but rather concrete, sacrificial action. Third, God gave us this good gift because it shows us the depth of God's justice and holiness. That rather than excusing our sin, to win his bride back, he would send his own son. He would put the punishment of our sin on his son. Fourth, this should help us recognize the horror of sin. Sin is not just a slight mistake we make. It's not a minor issue. Sin is fleeing from your spouse into the arms of another. Fifth, this shows us God's good and holy jealousy. Now that may seem weird. I thought jealousy was wrong. Well, there can be a good jealousy. I imagine if most of you spouses leaned over and whispered, hey, honey, of all the women I love, I love you best. You wouldn't get a, oh, thank you. You'd get an elbow in the ribs going, we're talking after this service. What are you talking about? Of all the women you love. There should be one. And God has a jealous love for his people. I don't want you to pursue other things. I am the best. I will give you all that you need. Sixth, in this wonderful gift, we get a glimpse of the Trinity. In marriage, the two become one. It's a pale reflection of God who is eternally in three persons, but one being the three in one. So God gave us this wonderful gift of romance, of marriage, of sexuality, that we would have pictures so that when we wanted to know what God was like, what is our sin is like, what is it like for him to love us, we have ideas, pictures by which we can grasp that. And due to God, due to God giving this to us as a picture, he cares that we use it correctly. You may have read the classic story, Animal Farm, in which animals overtake a farm and two pigs are vying for power over control of the farm. One pig named Snowball desperately wants to build a windmill because of all the work it will allow the animals to be freed from. Another one, Napoleon, cares not at all. He never listens to these plans, and really, he shows his ultimate disdain that one day he walks into the room where Snowball has carefully drawn with chalk all the schematics, and he just urinates all over them. By destroying the picture, Napoleon clearly showed what he thought of what the picture represented. And God does not take kindly to us discarding 
trashing and abusing his picture. Yet while that is true in our so-called quest for freedom, we have said, no one can tell me what to do in this area except myself. We've told each other, follow your own heart. Do whatever you want. As long as you want, experiment. Try out. It's up to you. It's all your choice. Yet your creator does not agree. Earlier we had read for us 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in it, I don't know if you caught the amazing statement. In it it said, for this is the will of God for you. I mean, that's an amazing statement. You can know God's will for your life. And then he says, your sanctification. In other words, that you would live a holy life. That's what God wants from you. But then he doesn't leave it in this abstract category. If you look at it again, verses 4 through 8, it's all about, well, what is it all about? He says, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then he concludes saying, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God. God cares about how you treat this area of your life. Yet, to be clear, the Bible is clear, but many professing Christians utterly disregard this. I've talked to Christian men, I normally have these conversations with Christian men, ranging in ages from 20 to 75, I'm not exaggerating, who have told me it's hard to find a Christian girl who will go on a date and not try to get me into bed with her. Not just young people, even old people. Only 3% of merit 3% of people wait until marriage to be, in, be intimate. And only 20% of evangelicals wait till they're married to do this. It's not as though these are one-time slip-ups either. In 2010, 77% of our population professed to be Christians, but 48% still moved in before they were married, and 65% of first-time marriages were with people who were already living together. In other words, there's a large number of professing Christians who do the exact opposite and completely disregard what God says in this matter. This is why our secular friends or our homosexual friends say, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. The Bible is very clear about these things and all you care about is what we're doing. And to which we should say, you are right. I don't like that fact. I wish it wasn't true, but they're correct. In many churches, you can do just about anything, and as long as it's not homosexuality, nothing's going to be said. And yet the Bible is clear. And so the response is then not to continue in hypocrisy and deny the Bible. It's to repent. As a church in the U.S., we need to repent of our sin in this area and return to all that God has said in this. As well, we should hear the serious warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're still in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just Flip back one page, or maybe it's on the same page. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But it doesn't end there. Notice verse 11, And such were past tense some of you but you were washed you were sanctified you were justified in the name of the lord jesus christ and the spirit of our god god cares so much about this that he sent his son to die 
and redeem you from these sins. You don't have to walk around with a scarlet letter on your chest. You don't need to think, well, I'm damaged goods. I've ruined myself for life. You need to realize, yes, this is important, but God can redeem you from any and all sin. More than that, maybe not more than that, but along with that, we need to realize, though this is important, they're not the only sins in the list. Sometimes Christians treat sexual sins as the uber bad, but in this same list, Paul listed idolatry, greed, drunkenness, cheating, people who curse God. Proverbs 6, 16 through 17 says, these are six things God hates. It's a pretty strong statement. And none of them have anything to do with our sexual life. In other words, yes, this is serious, but it's not the unforgivable sin. And it's not even the most consequential sin. And yet God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for all types of sinners. So let's be clear. God does care about this, but also God forgives and he has lavish love and grace for all types of sin. Thus, to understand this topic, we have to realize how important God sees it and how it reveals him and his relationship to us. And yet we also have to understand that we have to notice, like the emperor, he doesn't have any clothes on. And what we're going to go through next, I hope most of you go, why do we even have to say that? But it's pretty clear, sex is powerful. That is our next point. Sex is powerful. C.S. Lewis wrote his famous book, Mere Christianity, in 1943. And in that book, he included a chapter about sexual morals. And he said at that time, for 20 years, people have been saying that, you know, this is just like any other human activity, any other appetite, just like wanting food. We're making too much about it. Well, that was written in 1943. He said 20 years before this. So now for a century, 100 years, we as a civilization have been told, you know what the problem is? People are just making too big a deal of this. It's just like hunger. We're all hungry. We're all going to go get something after this service. It's not a big deal. We all have appetites. No big deal. Yet a century of this message has not changed three realities. The bond, the fallout, and the ramification. First, the bond. God made intimacy so that when you join together, a bond is created. Genesis 2 says we leave and we cling to one another, and the two become one, one flesh. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 17. You can look in that chapter there that says when a man joins himself to a prostitute, they become one flesh. Now, this isn't necessarily something that you can see with your eye, some kind of bond where they're stuck by glue or anything, but it's something that happens relationally, emotionally, and we see this in the fallout when this is not treated correctly. And that's the second thing, that it should be obvious in the fallout when this is used incorrectly. Though many, especially in our civilization, have tried to be friends with benefits, so they say, it never works in the long run. Now, I don't know why I like to have this conversation, but I like to talk to people about when they were kids and what foods their parents made them eat. I probably all told you I hated pimento cheese, And I took a spanking over eating a pimento cheese sandwich. It happened. And I've talked to lots of other people, and they've told me, oh, my parents made me eat this. Oh, yeah, my parents. And then, oh, what are you going to do with your kids? When they don't want to eat, what are you going to do? And you have this conversation back and forth. 
But the interesting thing is, as I've had this conversation, I don't know, dozens of times, no one has ever broken down in tears. No one has said, I've had to go to counseling for years because my parents ate me eat my broccoli. There's no Me Too movement for parental broccoli enforcement because eating is not the same thing. And you might be going, yeah, the emperor has no clothes. But we have to say this. Sex is not like eating. Okay, you got the lesson today. But we have to say this due to the insanity of our culture. This is obvious, and yet we want to say, no, no, it's just like everything else. But the third thing we have to realize is the powerful ramifications. I don't know if you've ever had a really great meal. I've had some really good ones. I can tell you some of the times and places. Oh, that was number one. This is my second favorite. But in none of those meals did I ever think another meal is going to be generated from the fact that I enjoyed this meal. When you join man and woman, you can create a new life. I mean, if your mind is not staggered by that, you're not understanding what's going on. Uh, someone who did not exist forever before this now is in existence. Nothing that we have by any scientific device, by anything, comes close to that. A life that was not there before has come into existence for good or evil. Sex is powerful. As I've already said many times, I do hope most of that was like, why is the emperor not wearing clothes? Seems pretty obvious. And yet, our culture has gone so far astray that we need to state the obvious. Another clear thing is that God made marriage for procreation. That's our third point, procreation. Now, you may have noticed I did not say, and I intentionally did not say, God made sex for procreation. He did. But God's design is that every marriage should be open to and attempt to have children. Now, what I just said would have been not controversial and would have been no major, major revelation for thousands of years. Yet now, many people would take quite an offense at what I just said. It's my life. It's my body. I can do what I want. If we don't want children, it's up to us. And yet, what is the core issue of salvation? The core issue of salvation is admitting I've wanted to live my life my way. I've wanted to do what I want, and I confess that as sin, and I say, God, I'm now submitting to you. I'm crying out to you for forgiveness, and now I'm going to do my best to try and follow you. So the question really is not what do I want, but what does God say? And in this regard, God clearly commanded, not suggested as an option, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, this definitely means way more than having children, but it doesn't mean less than it. And Adam alone could not bear children. So as we looked at last week, God made a helper suitable for him, which again means way more than this. Last week, we delighted in the fact that it creates a partnership, a fellowship, of a relationship. And of course, this does not mean someone is sinning if they're infertile or they get married later in life and they can't have children. And that doesn't dictate the number of children you have or when you have them. But every marriage should be open to the possibility of having children. I believe the Bible is quite clear on that. You might say, here, but Genesis 1 said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We filled the earth. 
Well, in 1798, Thomas Malthus wrote an article entitled Essay on Population, in which he raised alarm to the fact that we have almost totally populated the earth. It was in 1798, that was the first major article arguing for this, over 220 years ago, when the population was about 1 billion. We are now at 7.5 billion, and there is no country, there is no civilization that is in under every year having a threat of starvation. Yes, they might have a famine, they might have a drought, and then they do. But we are still not overpopulated. And people still, even though 220 years to prove the opposite, say, we're overpopulated. And yet now, people are actually saying, we're underpopulated. The problem is the declining birth rate, and we need to start having more children. And so, we need to honor God's command for marriage and attempt Though we understand God sometimes does not allow couples to have children, marriage and sexuality were for procreation. And because we deny this basic reality that marriage and intimacy leads to children and thus responsibility, we've created all sorts of problems. What I'm about to say might be considered sexist, but let's be honest. Guys are lazy. Sorry to let the team down, guys. But the reality is that without proper motivation, community, expectation, and drive, men will be 35 in their boxers, in the basement, with their Cheetos and a video game console. They won't be achieving much. You know, when segments of our society said, we don't need men, and men, you can do whatever, whenever, however you want, but we don't need you, many men said, yes, this is what I've wanted all along. I wanted all the joy and no responsibility. And as a society, we go, yeah, you don't need to worry about that. But these things should go together like a horse and carriage. It's elementary people. This is not PhD level understanding of reality. God made that being together is important. It should create a bond. It should happen when you're married. And so our society is tearing itself apart so that now 40% of children are born into single-parent homes. Just consider that. Every five children you see, two of them has one parent. 25% of children are raised without a father. And a third of mother-led homes are in poverty. Many in our society rightly want to reduce or eliminate poverty. But you know the surest way to have that happen is when people are married. Study after study shows that married couples double or even triple their wealth in comparison with their single friends. Another study showed that men who marry in their 20s make more money by their mid-30s than men who marry after 30 regardless of their education level. Why? Well, because marriage, and especially children, makes the guy get out of the basement, get on some clothes, and go get a job and be responsible and be a productive member of society. These things go together. And the point of all this is not to reduce this topic to, well, this is about making babies, but rather to realize the odd nature that we divorce that from the equation. God calls us to have children, and children are a blessing, but that's not the only blessing, though. For in intimacy, God gave us a picture, but he also gave us something that is for pleasure and enjoyment. That is our fourth point, pleasure. 
sexuality is a good gift for marriage. And Adam and Eve originally were naked and unashamed. That's why the Bible, and we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about sex, has a whole book, the Song of Solomon, devoted to two people in love. Proverbs chapter 5, 18 through 19, commands delight sexually in your spouse. Yet in our desire to help people and protect them, people, sometimes Christians, have painted all of this as bad. Martin Luther, the great church reformer of of the 1500s, wrote, When I was a boy, I believed that I could not even think about the life of married people without sinning. Everybody was fully persuaded that anyone who intended to lead a holy life acceptable to God could not get married, but had to live as a celibate and take the vow of celibacy. I did once have a conversation with a woman who said, I had so ingrained in me as a child in my church that this was bad, that even when I was married, it took years to not feel guilty doing this. This is not just Christians who have distorted this, though. You probably have heard of Mahatma Gandhi, the famous pacifist and champion for India's freedom. He said, it is the duty of every thoughtful Indian not to marry. In case he is helpless in regard to marriage, he should abstain from sexual intercourse with his wife. And yet God gave this to us as a gift. We open the service by reading 1 Timothy 4. God gave us these things to enjoy, and we should not deny them from one another. Yes, Jesus was very clear. The issue is not just actions. It starts in the heart. But Jesus was not saying it's wrong to recognize beauty or desire this in your life. Lust is dwelling on and coveting the sexual activity or person that you should not have. Recognizing that someone is attractive or having sexual desires is not inherently sinful. In fact, God made us to recognize beauty. He made us with these desires. However, in the wrong place, they are wrong. A helpful analogy that is often used is that of a fire. A fire is a wonderful thing in the right place, in the right context. In a backyard, you can make a little marshmallow, get nice and soft, and you can squish it between some chocolate and some grams, and quite good. You can eat it up. You can put it in a fireplace and get heat. Yet in the wrong place, it destroys. A friend of mine told me of being a child and gathering leaves together, and then he lit them, and he and his friend were cheering, burn, burn, as they were watching everything grow and go on fire. He didn't understand the damage that would happen, and if a relative had not come out and given them a little spanking and put it out, they would have destroyed the property. In the right context, beautiful, wonderful, great gift. In the wrong context, destructive, ugly. And in our attempt to say, oh, this is bad, sometimes we have gone too far and said, it is bad, not in the wrong context, it is bad. Likewise, we should not go, always good, always good. In the right context, it is good. We need to remember both of those. And so we could recognize God's gift. God could have given us a purely functional world. Here is the food you eat. It doesn't taste good, but you've got to eat it to live. Here is how children are made. It's not enjoyable, but hey, it's the way children are made. And yet God gave us delights with our taste buds, with our bodies that we enjoy and are wonderful. And yet, like, in this case, a good analogy, food, sometimes we realize we have to say no, because I want the 
seventh bowl of ice cream and then the 13th bowl of ice cream. I need to say, one was enough. This is not time. I don't begin my day with ice cream. Maybe I end it. Put it in the right place in context. And the appetite is good. And the wrong one, it is destructive. And so God has given us boundaries and rules not to diminish and not in any way to ruin our enjoyment or pleasure of this, but rather to enhance it. And one of the ways God gave us to control our desires is through marriage. For after sin entered into the world, marriage became also a protection. And that is our last point, protection. I read from these verses in 1 Corinthians 7 to open the sermon. And in there, Paul is dealing with these people who are saying, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul's saying, that's not true. That's not true at all. Rather, it is good. He talks about how verses 2 that they verse 3 that they should come together in this way that they should serve their spouses he goes on in verse 4 that husbands and wives don't have authority over their own body but the other one does now like any text taken out of this context and used for the wrong way this could mean something horrible paul is not saying you become a slave for the other person the point is that we should consider our spouse's desires above our own. Rather than our first, second, third, going on for many more iterations of our impulses being for us, we should say, what do you want? How can I please you? Nor is Paul stating that a spouse should do anything, anytime, anywhere their spouse demands. You know, what Paul says is to men and women. He's saying both of you Consider that it is better to serve than be served. And so if someone comes from this and says, well, right here, you have to do this because you're to submit to me, as this passage says, you have not understood and applied this passage. You should switch from demanding what you want to asking, how can I serve? And so Paul continues, says, spouses, do not withhold this from one another except for pa- prayer. And then he quickly adds that they should come back together because Satan likes to use our lack of self-control to cause us to sin. And then he goes on, verses 6 and 7, he says, look, I think it's better if you stay single. But he says it's not wrong to marry. You may have heard seven years ago, 2014, the U.S. changed for the first time from having more married adults to single adults. Before this, until the mid-1900s, most of the population only about, it was about, most of the population was married, and singles were about 5%. Now, I don't bring this up to say singleness is bad. Many of you are single. Yeah, let's consider some ways our society has changed. The Guardian reports that in 1860, that's the year 1860, the average onset of puberty for girls was age 16.6. In 1920, it was 14.6. In 1950, it was 13.1. In 1980, 12.5. And in 2010, it dropped to average onset 10 and a half years old. Boys are about one year later. And while that has dropped, the age of getting married has gone up. Now, women marry for the first time on average at age 28, and men for the first time at age 30. So if you put that together, we as a society are saying, For 17 of your most sexually charged years, you should just do nothing. And, not too surprisingly, 
we then have things like 40% of all births being to unwed mothers. Now, again, I am not denigrating singles in any way, but I'm just saying, let's be honest. Let's realize the harm that we're doing. Paul even says singleness is good. If you look at verse 28, though, Paul encourages singleness not so he can be free to do whatever he wants, not so that he can get his career settled first or so that he has more expendable income or that he can travel more. He wants to be single so he can serve God more, not serve himself. And so back in verses 8 and 9, Paul says, if you don't have control, get married. The message is really quite simple. If you have sexual desires, and you should enjoy that in the fulfillment with your spouse, or get married. If you're married, you should seek to serve your spouse rather than using sex to manipulate them, reward them, or punish them. Now, I know, due to our overly romanticized view of relationships and individual autonomy, these verses seem like bondage, not freedom. And yet, Paul is not saying, go out, find the first person of the opposite sex, get it done. He is, of course, including other things. Paul knows that ultimately marriage is not going to solve the problem because the problem is in the heart. Yet along with seeking to serve your spouse in partnership, pleasure, and procreation, we get the gift of being able to protect our spouse in this area. You know, at times in talking about this, it just really seems like people don't want to face reality. The reality is our culture is obsessed with sex. And thus, if you want to live purely in this culture, you're going to need protection. Every year, Hollywood releases 600 movies and makes $10 billion in profit. The adult movie industry makes 13,000 films and makes close to $15 billion in profit. They make more money than Major League Baseball, NFL, and the NBA combined. Though this is called adult entertainment, 62% of teens and young adults have received an explicit image on their phone being sent to them. During teenage years, 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to this, and the average first exposure is age 11. And for those, oh, well, this is just, it's just entertainment. It's no big deal. This is not a prudish overreaction. Research shows time and again this rewires your brain. It causes women to be abused. This causes young men to lose interest in being with someone physically and just looking at them on a screen. Beyond that, there, as all adults know, social pressure to be active. If you're not, you are thought of as strange. And if you're one of the most strange creatures in our world, you're a virgin. And now... Our ultimate concern in these things is to honor God. We should care first, what does God want? How can I be pleasing to him? But we have to realize we reap what we sow. In a nation of 330 million people, 110 million Americans have STDs. And 20 million new infections happen every year. Now, that's not the only thing that I'm saying. We're, oh, don't do it because of that. But it is reality. We are literally killing ourselves so let me conclude with five quick remarks about how you can protect yourself and glorify god in this matter first be honest and real with other people other believers about where you are in this 
sin grows in the darkness. But God made us to need others to help live a life that honors him. Proverbs 18.1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. And I know, just as it's hard to talk to children about this, it's hard to talk to other adults about. But God made us to need others. And you won't beat this by yourself. Reach out to someone in this church. Reach out to Keith or I or some other person. If you're a woman, reach out to one of the mature women and ask for help. Second, don't be naive to the places and times of temptation. Tied into the first, don't have privacy on your phone. Don't start to read an unhelpful article there, scandalous picture there, and end up going where you don't want to go because no one knows what you're doing. Get accountability software. Put computers in the open. Be vigilant wherever you are. And we often have this mindset, well, in the moment of temptation, I'll be strong. And yet, why don't we back up and go, let's just not put ourselves in the moment of temptation. I'll doubt I'll ever quote from Ta Nahisi Coates again, but he wisely said, I've been with my spouse for almost 15 years. In those years, I've never been with anyone but the mother of my son. But that's not because I'm a specially good and true person. In fact, I am wholly in possession of an unimaginably filthy and mongrel mind. But I am also a dude who believes in guardrails, as a buddy of mine once put it. I don't believe in getting in the moment and then exercising willpower. I believe in avoiding the moment. I believe in being absolutely clear with myself about why I'm having a second drink and why I'm not. Why I'm going to a party and why I'm not. I believe that the battle is lost at happy hour, not at the hotel. I am not a good man, but I am prepared to be an honorable man. Now, if an atheist can say that, how much more should Christians be honest and go, I'm not going to put myself in those places that are going to be tempting. I'm going to be wise about these various times, these various places put me where I am prone to fall. So flee even the opportunity to sin. Third, Realize that in Christ, you have forgiveness of sins and the power of the resurrection. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Not only did God forgive you for all, he also made you new. He made you alive. Through the resurrection of Jesus, you have been brought from death to life and the gospel is the power of god you don't have to give in you have through christ defeated the power of death and sin you are no longer under its tyranny yes you still need to fight but fight as a forgiven and a victorious saint fourth in this long talk we need to realize this is not the most important aspect of your life yes it's important but trust me you have other sins you have pride you have envious tendencies you have greed and we could go on and on and how do i know you have that because i have it this is an important issue but god does not treat this as the one aspect of your life that's the most important and if you mess up here sorry buddy it's over we have multitudes of sins we need to be fighting in our life and so yes i'm not saying don't fight it Fight it. Seek purity. But also realize if you stumble, there's forgiveness. 
cry out to Christ, and continue to fight again and again. As the saying goes, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Get the focus off your sin and focus on the Savior. And fifth, let's end by giving thanks to God because he has given us deep joys and abiding pleasures of which we only get to begin to taste of them now. I'll conclude with this quote by Ben Patterson. He says, with all of this sexual obsession, one is tempted to downplay the pleasures and goodness of sex, to say they're overrated, but that might do the devil's will as much as the obsession itself. Pleasure is God's idea, and God is the devil's enemy. The devil actually hates pleasure because he hates the God of pleasure. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, the devil Screwtape tries to explain to his nephew Wormwood what he finds most appalling and disingenuous about God, that God is really out to make people happy, and that even the most austere parts of his program, the spiritual disciplines, are really ruses, clever deceptions to make them more happy. He's a hedonist at heart, sniffs Screwtape. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade. We're only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled the world full of pleasures. And so let's end not beating ourselves up, not wondering how we're going to fight, but thanking God that he's given us something that's so beautiful and that one day it'll We'll look back and go, that was nothing to the pleasure we are enjoying for all eternity with him. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God of pleasure. And yet in our sin, we have pursued things and distorted the good gifts you've given us. So, Lord, we come asking for that forgiveness that you offer in your son. And yet also delighting in you. Thank you for these good gifts. Help us to leave in joy of a God who gives us such pleasures and joy. Ultimately, you give us yourself. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.